Hello and welcome to the Day Minimus podcast. I'm podcast editor Cameron Moyer. On today's show, the second in our series about first-year JD subjects, I talked to Associate Professor Will Partlett about principles of public law, or PPL. We discussed topics including how Will became a legal academic, the rule of law and challenges to it, public international law and some examples of it succeeding, and the role of lawyers in maintaining the rule of law. It's a really interesting conversation no matter what stage of your degree you're at, and I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here is Will Partlett. So, Will Partlett, welcome to the show. So, I just wanted to um, start with some questions about how you came to study law. So, you didn't study in Australia, did you? No. So, I, so you know, many of the people in my class have, or no, I mean, I was born in Australia, I grew up till I was about seven or eight in Canberra, and then moved to the US. And then when I went to the US, I you know, I didn't originally, wasn't interested, really interested in, in law at all. I actually was a, wanted to be a historian. Um, so I did history, uh, did a PhD in history, and then realized that, you know, I wanted to do something a little more applied. So that, that, that got me into, into law, into legal academia. So I kind of, you know, so the approach I take to my research and, and also to the way that, I, you know, that I think I teach public law as well is to try to understand the historical development of law, how, how law has developed over time um, and how we can, you know, obviously the, the continuing, you know, the problems and the, and the kind of themes that emerge in, in different contexts and different parts of the world. And so I'm a comparativist. I compare, you know, the US, Australia, parts of Eastern Europe um, and, and kind of interested in understanding how, you know, comparison can help us understand things a little bit more about kind of the concepts that, that drive public law. Mm. So what did you do between graduating and becoming an academic or did you just dive straight into academia. So when I graduated law school, I actually um, clerked for a judge. So I worked for an appellate judge in the U.S., which was, I think, easily probably the most formative experience. For, and it'll be the best job I'll ever have outside of academia um, in the sense that I worked for a judge who was, who herself had been a civil rights advocate. She was a uh, the first, um, she interviewed for the Supreme Court in the 1930s and was told by one of the justices on the Supreme Court that if no more eligible, if no eligible men presented themselves, he would hire her. She finished number one in her class at Penn Law School. So, anyway, so she was a really, really, um, you know, inspirational, but also just a very, very, very good lawyer. Um, and she, you know, she imparted a lot of really, you know, very important kind of lessons about how we interpret, you know, how law operates, the role of judges, the role of courts. And she, I mean, I see her as an example of, you know, the best of what we have in terms of, you know, the independence of the judiciary rule of law. You know, these people who really come from these remarkable backgrounds with these different experiences who come in and, and you know, she always saw herself as independent from policy. She had her political views clearly, but she would never put them in the place of what she did on the, in her decision. She would ask us to write opinions if she was, she'd say, write the opinion both ways and figure out which way it writes. And then she would work with us on figuring that out. So it was, yeah, it was a really, so that was something that I did right after law school, which was hugely important to my career trajectory. Uh, and then I worked as a public defender, largely on her um, suggestion. I worked as a public defender in the criminal uh, system, in the federal system in Texas, and kind of, again, saw how you know, the legal system stacked in favor of certain people versus others and so forth. And, and have always taken that, you know, those experiences with me into my teaching as well as my research. Mm. So what drew you into becoming an academic? I think it's the opportunity, one, to um, 
to take time with legal issues. Like, you know, as a public defender and as a clerk, you're always jumping from issue to issue and you don't have a lot of time to really think through the broader uh, implications or aspects of it. And I've always been interested in that. I've always, I've always been someone who's interested in kind of wanting to think about the broader context for particular issues. So that's, that's something that's been really, and, and I get to do that with my research. Um, and I also try to do that as well, as much as I can in the, in my teaching. It's something I, I've always enjoyed teaching. Um, as a historian, I was interested in historic in educational methods in the Soviet Union. <laughs> so I was like, you know, I was doing research on early Soviet education. So I've always been interested in the process of, of educational um, pedagogy and so forth. So, you know, being an academic gave me the opportunity both to do research and to think about those broader theoretical things, but also to really, um, you know, to teach, to become a teacher. And I think, you know, one of the key roles of, of an academic is, um, is, is, is teaching and being, and, and trying to, you know, think about and try to develop courses in such a way that they are, you know, that particularly show how law is so relevant to our everyday lives and how, you know, mm. how it's in and, and how to, and how to make arguments, right? I mean, that's what we're tr trying to do as lawyers. And I think that's, I mean, I think law school should be one of the most exciting things that we all do. I mean, everyone kind of, I think a lot of people come to law school thinking, oh God, my parents made me, or I, this is going to be, this is going to be boring and I'm just going to have to get through it. But, you know, the, the hope is that, and you know, one thing is that, that I try to do in teaching is, is try to say, look guys, let's, let's, let's try to have some fun with this as well and see how it's creative, see how important, you know, the role of lawyers is in developing the law and in changing the law, right. And in, in making the, and that again, comes from that experience I had post law school as well, working for, for judge, for the judge that I mentioned. So, yeah, I think it was, for me, it was a very, I mean, I was, I'm just very, feel very fortunate to be an academic for those reasons. Mm. So part of your research specialty is in, um, the legal systems of former Eastern Bloc states. How did you um, come to specialize in that? What drew you to it? Well, it all started, I guess, in university where I was kind of not doing very well as a pre-med student. And I was just like, well, I need to do something else. <laughs> I was like, kind of failed organic chemistry or didn't almost failed organic chemistry. So I was like, oh, I'll take, I'll take Russian language. That'll be something, something new. And I just loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, loved the language, started taking the historic history classes started reading the literature. It's just like something that just captured me. So I've always been interested in, and since then, and it's basically since that, since I was 18, so almost, you know, more than 25 years, I've, I've studied that part of the world. I've been fascinated by that part of the world. I've also seen how little we know about that part of the world in the US and Europe and Australia, you know, and, and what we call the West. We, you know, we really don't understand that part of the world particularly well, largely because a lot of us, a lot of people don't speak the language um, it's, it was a significant area of study during the cold war, but after the cold war, the kind of study of that part of the world really dropped off. So it's, yeah, it's kind of like, to me, it's just this fascinating puzzle to study and to understand and to, and, and also just, you know, a place that has, you know, I just think really interesting things to, to show the world about how we understand relationships between institutions, the role, how we build rule of law, the kind of assumptions we make in judicial independence and so forth. So there's a lot that I've found that I've drew. So for me, it's just this place that is, I, I think I'll probably for the rest of my life find endlessly <laughs> fascinating and, and a source of, of, you know, real, I think, you know, uh, and I'm, I hope that, you know, there'll be more people studying it from particularly from a legal perspective. There's been a kind of a resurgence of historians looking at the region um, as well as political scientists, but there hasn't been as much work on the legal and constitutional side, public law side. So I think, you know, 
that's something that also interests me is, 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 is so I think, yeah, for that, for that reason, it's, and, and I take my historical kind of background with me, his background history to, to that part of the world. Cause of course history there matters as much as it does everywhere, but it really is really deeply embedded in how you know, a lot of the ideas and how it works and so forth. So yeah, it's, it's something that I'm probably will always be interested in. Hmm. So since you've mentioned the rule of law, I guess we'll dive into the PPL related um, material. What is the rule of law? Oh, the million dollar question. That's, that's put me on the spot. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's it, we as as everyone in PPL will soon learn, or if you've taken PPL and you're listening to this podcast, you'll you know we have we, uh, Lord Bingham has given us you know eight different dimensions. There's a thin and a thick version. Um, you know, from my perspective, it's you, you know when you're in a society where there is no rule of law. You know when you're in a society where you feel very exposed. You know, I've been in situations in parts of the former Soviet Union, in Russia in particular, where I've been stopped by the police and, um, you know, documents have been taken from me and I don't know when I'm going to get them back. Um, you don't know how you can, um, you know, actually, can you go to an impartial court and get some sort of outcome that is fair? Um, so, yeah, so you definitely know when you don't have rule of law, which you don't have the ability to, to, um, to you know, break free from kind of just the power of the, of the person with, you know, the, the policeman on the street or the politician who's just exercising raw power. So I think it is, it's something beyond raw power. It's something about the importance of reasoned decisions, the importance of independence, the importance of, of, of a kind of creating a discourse or a tradition of, of, of arguing about what are, what is just in society. And that's really what I, you know, I view um, both, private and public law, but certainly public law is, is, is a tradition and a discourse of, of arguing about and reasoning about this and trying to try to develop the law in such ways that, that it's, that it's fair, but also, you know, that is in line with, you know, that is not pure politics, right? That there's something different about it, it has, obviously law has political effects. It has political outcomes, but it, it itself, the process of determining these cases and controversies that come up are not themselves determined by, individual self-interest of a politician or the individual power interests of a group or anyone. It is, it is instead based on what I did, you know, said before we work for the judge. It's how does a case write? When you think about, when you think about a close case, is, is it right better one way or the other? What, what does the sources say? What's, so there's an internal methodology that is, that I think deeply underpins the rule of law that sets it apart from politics. Um, not saying that it is not, doesn't have important political context and, and really does. And we need to think about that, but we also want to ensure that politics is, is separated so that we can maintain the, the, you know, the concept of rule of law. And, and of course the importance of, of lawyers, right? Not just judges. We talk a lot of, I mean, think a lot about judges in the role, but the, you know, all of us as, you know, as, as lawyers or, as, you know, kind of burgeoning lawyers and young lawyers as, as the role we're going to play in that system. Whatever, whatever position we end up in, whether we're drafting laws for the Victorian government or, or making arguments in front of the high court or working in a, court, in a corporate law firm, we're all responsible for you know, maintaining those values and, and really kind of and living that life because we, there's, there's always going to be challenges to rule of law in every society. Yeah. We've seen that recently in the United States, right, with Donald Trump and his views about how law is an instrument of power and so forth. So, you know, looking at the post-Soviet world is, is, you know, I think is, is in some ways we learn about ourselves as well, because we're, we're, we're not, you know, immune from the kinds of problems that, that, that plague many parts of the world with, you know, lack of rule of law and, and you know, kind of, you know, arbitrariness and, you know, kind of just personalized power. Mm. So as a way of illustrating 
rule of law, and he did touch on this. What is an alternative to the rule of law as a way of organizing a society? What's sort of an extreme example of an alternative to the rule of law? Well, I think, I mean, the, the, the classic would be some sort of monarchical personalized system where you give all power to one individual, the, you know, who, who makes all the decisions, you know, the, the kind of the classic, whether it's the, you know, I mean, we can think of parts of the world that I study, you know, these kind of super presidential systems where, you know, all formal, largely all formal and informal power is concentrated in the hands of the president and the presidential administration. And decisions are made very much by a very one individual and those people around him or her. Largely, it's him in that part of the world. Um, so, you know, that's the alternative rule of law is, is a kind of personalized system where, you know, and often it's, a, it's, a, it's you know, one person can't make all the decisions, but it's a one person and the, and the group around him or her who make all the decisions. And of course, in those kinds of systems, you know, rules don't matter that much. It's all about appealing that individual to that group, <laughs> right? And trying to say, you know, like, so it's all about connections and so forth. And that's the kind of system that, it, you know, we, I don't think, you know, people really want to live in. It's not fair. It obviously advantages people who have those connections to those powerful people. It, 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 it creates a lot of problems, but it, it really, that's the alternative. And that's, and you know, that's, that is, you know, I'd say probably more than half of the world's population live under systems that approximate that, where you have one individual or one group that are, you know, monopolize power and, and are, are, you know, themselves make the decisions because they, you know, and, and concentrate power in their own hands. Um, so mm -hmm. it, yeah, so I think that's the that's really the alternative and one that you know is as we we you know seen throughout history and we see in the in the world today is one that is, is is a system that continues to exist. So, are there systems where there is a form of rule of law present where it's not a um, you know the sort of Anglo-American liberal um, form of rule of law? So, I'm thinking in particular about um, socialist legal systems, in particular the Soviet Union, Vietnam. I'm not sure about China's legal system, but I'd be interested, how do they, how are they different? Yeah, I mean, look, I think there are many different forms of, of rule of law. I mean, socialist systems uh, are struggle to, to have real rule of law because of the principles of democratic centralism. Um, and, you know, the idea um, in a socialist system of, of you know, at least the Leninist side, I mean, socialism itself is a highly contested concept, but at least in its instantiation in places like Vietnam, China, and formerly in, you know, in the Soviet Union and other parts in Cuba and so forth, is, you know, is the idea that all power is centralized in the political, in the party, right? The Communist Party makes the decisions and they're the vanguard and that all power is kind of centralized in, in their hands. Um, so as a result, you, you tend to struggle, you tend to have a difficulty with rule of law because, you know, the the, the role of the legislature, the role of, um, you know, of institutions tends to be degraded because they're all responding to the dictates of the, the kind of centralized party. Um, so as a result, you, you know, so rule of law itself has an important institutional component, right? So, you know, the, the idea that rule of law itself in, ensures that you have a, you have an independent legislature that can pass laws. You have an independent judiciary that interprets those laws. Um, and that you have an executive that implements them, right? That's an important aspect of the rule of law that's kind of instantiates itself through kind of constitutional structure. Um, in a socialist system, the problem is all that is concentrated in the hands of the Communist Party and the Communist Party controls the legislature, right? They control the courts, they control the executive. Um, so so it's, it's always gonna be difficult, I think, for 
socialist systems to um, to be you know fully socialist systems like Leninist kind of social systems. Now there are places that do have very interesting non-liberal conceptions of rule law. I'm thinking of places like South Africa, for instance, Colombia, um, where you know they have really interesting social rights jurisprudence, where they're saying, look, you know. We have a constitutional system. We want to push back on neoliberal economics, for instance, right? We want to create rights for, you know, pensions. We want to create rights against. We want to. We want to have a transformative kind of um, system against poverty, so that to some extent you change the way property rights operate. And that's very much South Africa, obviously anti-racist, um, overcoming legacies of racism. And and to some extent, those revise conceptions of of liberalism to some extent. But they don't go all the way to the and and in some ways I think you know those systems are interestingly the most transformative systems have found that they actually are grounded on conceptions of rule of law. It's just that you know the, the legislature itself will pass on a like social economic socioeconomic rights legislation and the courts will interpret it and so forth. But the the systems have not been very successful when they've been centralized. Instead, they've actually so you know so I think rule of law is is you know can work in a very you know like australian or us or uk type kind of traditional liberal system but of course australia is not a particularly traditional liberal system itself right when we have no as everyone's going to find out is or if you haven't taken con constitutional laws you know there's no bill of rights in australia which is really unusual right? so you know i think there's really there's different conceptions of rule of law around the world um socialism you know kind of what we see is socialism in the kind of soviet or chinese or vietnamese conception i think is is going to struggle to really have rule of law but there are other kind of ways that i think it has been um brought in through places like colombia and south africa that i think are very interesting mm. so is the rule of law hard to maintain and if so why i think so i mean i think because it it relies on um the first of all an idea that you would allow an independent judiciary um which Many of us take for granted, you know, it's easy to take for granted an independent judiciary, but when you get um, political leadership, like we saw recently in the United States with Donald Trump, um, when you get political leadership who does not value that and who will try to use the institutions or levers of power to undermine it, it's, we see how fragile these systems are. So there's always threats to it everywhere in the world. Not, you know, and, that, and Australia is not immune to that at all. Um, you know, so I think it's one it's something that requires constant, you know, I mean, people say, you know, democracy is not a end state. It's a, it's a practice and it's very true. It's a constant and, you know, and lawyers play an incredibly important role in that, um, in that system. And of, and of always saying, you know, no matter what, who the, who the leader is, you might be a, you know, long-term supporter of a political party, but if that leader of that political party starts to do things that, you know, that are problematic from a rule of law, you've got to criticize them. You have a duty to do so, right. As a, as a lawyer and as a, as someone who understands the importance of this institutional system under underpinning a rule of law um, approach. Mm. So what do you see as current challenges to the rule of law? I mean, it depends where you are. Um, mm. You know, one thing that we've seen, I think quite recently in, in, in Australia is the role of massive mega corporations um, like Facebook, Google, private corporations that exercise huge public power. Um, so that's a huge threat to the rule of law. You know, to what extent can Facebook just choose to deplatform someone, right, without any political public input? Um, to what extent can Google, you know, advantage particular um, search engine results versus others without any, you know, these, and of course they play an incredibly important role as, as a public utility. I mean, we saw that very strongly with, 
you know, Facebook's recent decision to shut down its, its, its news source. And they just said, look, you know, people won't be able to get a lot of people get their COVID news from Facebook. They're not gonna be able to get that anymore. I mean, it had, so I think a big threat to rule of law is, is the role of private, these incredibly powerful multinational corporations. They're not just, it's not just the tech companies, it's others as well, but the tech companies, I think are a recent example of that. Um, you know, there's always, of course, also the, the threats internally from the, from the kind of executive branch government, you know, executive governance, uh, particularly in the last 50 to 60 years, has increasingly grown um, more and more powerful as the administrative state has grown, as the, as the, the role of the, um, of, of, you know, the administrative state in our lives is hugely significant. We have a massive regulatory state now. And of course, a lot of that is, ex is exercised through the executive so there's so there's threats to you know that central institution that we have in Australia and of course in the Westminster system of Parliament. What role does Parliament play in that? And we see that. I mean, you're going to see that in the Williams cases in constitutional law. But you know, the use of private contracting, right? like you know, the use of money, um, you know, to to you know, we have offshore contracting with you know in Nauru for our offshore processing, and of course all that is all that none of that subject to constitutional or a rule of law concerns because it's seen as being private and offshore. So there's, so there's a privatization issue, which of course privatization came up during the quarantine fiasco in, in Victoria last year, 2020. So privatization of, you know, is, which of course is the kind of related theme to the role of these big corporations is another big aspect of this. And, and, and of course it, it in, 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 at least in that private contracting context, it really does advantage the role of the executive because the executive is the one that signs these contracts. So yeah, so I think you know that's at least two. I mean, there's there's more, but those are I think two really um, pressing ones at the moment. And and as we've seen in in both cases, they have huge implications in Australia. Um, and 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 you know need to be thought there. And things things we will be talking about principles of public law, things that we will be and we'll be reading cases. I mean, the High Court in the Williams case is probably. I mean, the Williams case is one of the probably most under. You, you, from a comparative law point of view, I don't know how many people outside of Australia know about it. And, you know, I think probably all, when everyone reads the case, they're like, God, I don't hate reading this, but it is a really important case because it's the first time a high court, apex court in the world has really started to take on the constitutional ramifications of this mass move by executives to just sign contracts, you know, and it's at the state level too. We all know this with our infrastructure, the East West link, all that, debate, you know, it's, it's, and it's big time money, you know, billions and billions of dollars in parliament, you know, the executive can, can bind future executives. They say, I'm going to sign a 10 year deal to build the East West link. And if a future government comes in and cancels it, well, that's a $5 billion, you know, all these, these, it's big numbers. It's, it's lots of, so it, it really does play an important and, and poses challenges to rule of law. I think, yeah. Mm. Something more dubious example. Do you think that the COVID lockdowns have been a challenge to the rule of law? Um, no, I, I don't think I don't think they've been a challenge to the rule of law. I think that they, um, you know, that they, the way that they have been done, there has been, I think, you know, and interestingly, I think one of the things that we've really seen um, come out is the extent to which when we enter a kind of emergency situation, there is even more of a move towards executive governance. We've seen that in Victoria. Um, and, and in many cases that's justified. We need a flexible um, response to an emergency and the executive is the one that's able to do that. Um, but we have seen parliament push back on that. And I think we've seen that recently, you know, with the limiting or the shortening of these state of emergencies by, by crossbenchers in the, in the upper house and the legislative council of Victoria. Um, so I think we've seen really not so much courts because we've seen in other parts of the world that courts have stepped 
in and so in Germany and the United States courts have stepped in and struck down um, uh, COVID restrictions for being overly you know harsh or disproportionate really haven't seen much of that uh, in Australia but we have seen upper houses push back particularly because largely I mean and the other thing that's been fascinating about the COVID response is it's been almost 95% a state level response. So we've seen how important state governments are and federalism is, guys, we're gonna have a class on federalism in PPI. Like we're, you know, federalism is massively important now to the to Australian experience. And we see like Dan Andrews is more important to our lives in Melbourne than Scott Morrison by a long shot and certainly in the last year. Um, and it's, so it's, so it's seeing that. And, you know, I don't think there've been threats, but, but largely because the institutional structures have worked, right? And parliament has pushed back on the executive. So, you know, Andrews has been, the Andrews government has been forced to, you know, with, to kind of scale back some of its more um, long-term um, moves towards executive governance because of the role of the upper house. And of course the upper houses are elected differently. The upper houses have this power and that's kind of what they're there for um, to hold, you know, in many cases, the upper house that holds the executive to account much more than the lower house. Cause of course the lower house is, 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 is formed by the executive, by the government. So, um, you know, it's, it's, I think that's something that's been interesting. And I, so I think really we've seen the upper houses step in and, and ensure that parliament remains as the high court has said numerous times, the basal institution in our democracy. Um, and has and has kept has kept things going again, you know, and has ensured that there is a free press and free discussion of this, and you know, criticism and so forth and so on. So, I, so I don't really think there's been a real, you know, there there has been a kind of undermining of the rule of law during the COVID response, but largely because there has been checks and balances in the process, um, and that, but you know, and and those checks and balances have been necessary because of because of the natural instinct of governments and a, a move towards executive governance in these types of emergencies. So I wanted to shift topics now to um, another part of PPL, which is public international law. Mm-hmm. So what is public international law and where does it come from? Because I think the assumption is that the modern system started with the United Nations and anything before that was kind of negligible, but it does have a much longer history than that. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, it's it has a, I mean, again, I'm a I'm a I'm largely a domestic constitutional law person and comparativist, but you know, I can I can stray somewhat into the public international law um, area to say that yes, there's a much deeper history. And of course, when you if you read ICJ opinions um, and you read um, under you know any history in which there's been a huge turn in the in our academic understanding of international law to the historical approaches to international law, the extent to which the current system under which we you know the UN Charter and the you know, the institutions of the international uh, structure are all informed by that pre-World War II history is absolutely important. And, you know, and there's been, so I think, you know, so it's important to, first of all, understand that. Um, what is international law? I mean, I mean, international, or what is public international law? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an institutional system as well as a kind of set of sources of law. And, you know, of course, the key basis for this is, is what we, we really start to introduce in, um, principles of public law. And again, it's introductory. Uh, you know, I encourage everyone who wants to take, uh, to learn much more about it, to take a full elective on public international because it is fascinating. But it's to say, you know, is the state, right? The state, the sovereign, the sovereign states are the ones that enter into treaties. And of course, treaties are a key source of law. They're the ones that engage in state practice that forces, that, that leads to customary international law, opinion jurists and state practice. Um, they're the ones that really, um, you know, form the kind of key sources of law because we have those other sources of law, you know, you know the, 
long established principles of, of you know, jurists and these kind of almost natural law kind of ideas, which of course do to some extent predate uh, the World War II period. But the main ones really are driven by the idea of sovereignty. And of course, the key, one of the key tensions we're going to see and we kind of trace in, in principles of public law is, is there, or you know, question, tensions, question mark, is there some um, tension between the UN Charter's commitment to rights, to you know, kind of coming out of the terrible, horrible atrocities of World War II to a kind of rights and just international system. And at the same time, international system grounded on on respect for state sovereignty. <laughs> and, and it's like, you know, and we see that constantly in, in, in tension with each other, whether, whether it's with respect to the right, you know, the right to intervene, right, for humanitarian reasons and so forth. So, you know, we, we scratch the surface a little bit in principles of public law. We introduce concepts of sovereignty, of rights, of treaty interpretation, of all that. Um, but you know the questions, the real answers to the questions you're asking are gonna are gonna be found in in your public international law elective, which is you know which encourages which goes into much more detail. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So another question about public international law, though, is what's the incentive for people to obey? I think it's slightly hard for people to understand uh, that because there isn't a centralized authority to enforce all of this. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, there's there's a lot of different um, theories about you know, what makes international law law. I mean, one is reputation, right? We want to, um, you know, you violate you violate international law today. Well, you you know you you lose you lose reputation, or you, you know other states are going to be less likely to enter into treaties with you. Um, you know, there there is also the idea that you know you enter into a treaty institution and you also can be sanctioned for for violating that, right? So you. Um, and that there, some of those sanctions can be quite, can be quite, you know, kind of binding in, in many cases, particularly if you are a, depending on what, how much power you have as a state in the international system. If you're a smaller state, if you're somewhere like Australia, for instance, that is a very, that relies heavily on its status as a trading nation, Australia has a very strong incentive to follow international law, to be a, to be a kind of key player in the international legal system, because they want to promote this system. They want the, and they want to have a reputation. Be like, oh yeah, let's enter into a treaty with Australia. They'll 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 abide by that treaty. Um, you know, bigger, more powerful states, you know, can have more leeway. You know, to to violate international law. But even they still want to and see the importance of of you know shaping these international law you know regimes and being in, being involved in them. Right? I mean, because of course you know the world of globalization we live in now. You want to be interconnected both economically and politically. Um, and you know, reputation um, matters, and, and is worth is is really worth kind of both political and economic capital. So I think there's a, there's, there's real incentives for the international system to work with, even without, as you say, a, a, you know, kind of binding, you know, kind of a monopoly of force. There is no monopoly of force. Like you know, if if the U.S. decides to not follow international law, or Russia decides, they can do that. And unless you know, there's really not going to be you know, kind of someone coming in and saying, forcing them to do that. But there are, there are other ways of, of enforcing these rules um, that, you know, I think are, uh, are kind of, I think, underestimated to some extent. There doesn't, you know, all legal systems don't have to be centralized, you know. And in fact, we see that even within places, right? We have people follow rules even when they're not, when there's not clear centralized sanctions because of reputations, because of because maybe they just want to be a, they, they actually see themselves self-identity. They want to be seen as being a rule-based, um, you know, player, a fair player. They see that. They, so, it's, so there's all kinds, I think, of both normative as well as incentive-based reasons why we could, why we follow international law. Yeah. 
So could you provide an example of international law working to resolve a dispute? Because I think there's a lot of examples of it not working recently. Well, I mean, one, one thing that actually is not talked a lot about, uh, but where we see international law work really well um, in is, is the use of kind of international law to denuclearize um, many parts of the former Soviet Union. Because of course, so we have the Soviet Union uh, when it collapses in 1991, every single one of those, you know, it becomes from being one country, it becomes 15 separate countries. Each of those 15 separate countries have nuclear weapons in them. Um, the, there was a massive international um, effort led by Europe and the United States, um, which used international law to essentially encourage and, and was successful in getting nuclear weapons out of the uh, 14 republics, of course, they were, all, they were all taken back to Russia. Russia remains a nuclear power, but the, we did not suddenly have 15 new nuclear armed countries after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I think, you know, so that's a good example. And, and, and I mean, a more broader abstract way to answer your question is we often don't hear about the success of international law because they're less interesting. It's like, oh, okay, well, that was inevitable. That was always going to happen. Well, no, it wasn't always going to happen. Like, why did Ukraine give up its nuclear facilities and nuclear weapons? You know, when it was an independent state. Right. Um, why did Kazakhstan give up? Why did the Baltics, you know, why did Estonia, Latvia, like, and they did that because of the international legal regime that was in place. So I think, so there've been real successes. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of criticism around, um, around, you know, climate change and international law, but there, you know, like there, there are examples of, of, of good, of where international law has worked as well. Um, you know, and, and, and or even kind of transnational, whatever we call, you know, kind of transnational institutions like the EU, EU gets a lot of criticism as well. But to some extent, it's really led to a lot of prosperity in, in a part of the world that in the 20th century tore itself to shreds in, in two major world wars. So, you know, international law has a lot of, it does have many successes. And it's just that often it's like, you know, when, when things go well, you don't really notice these things. <laughs> it's only when they go badly when you criticize them. So I think that's part of it. So I wanted to shift topics again now to um, basically talking about professional ethics. So what is the role of lawyers in maintaining the rule of law? You did talk about this before, but I wanted to draw attention particularly to an op-ed op in the New York Times by Eric Newland titled, I'm haunted by what I did as a lawyer in the Trump Justice Department. Do you think that there's a trend of bad faith legalism that's undermining the rule of law? I think, I think, look, there's always going to be incentives for lawyers to do that kind of thing. I mean, we, you know, the classic example under the Bush administration was there was a very well-known um, law professor, John Yu, who wrote the torture memos, who justifying torture, um, you know, and I think it has been heavily criticized for that as well. And it did that largely to curry favor with political power. Um, you know, closer to home here in Victoria, of course, we have the emerging Gabo um, you know, the relationship between this lawyer, like at that point, Lawyer X, but we now know to be um, Ms. Gabo, who actually, I think, Melbourne Law School graduate, yeah. you know, herself was kind of heavily involved in actually informing on her own clients, right, about to the police. Um, so, and, you know, it's, it's a remarkable thing. Right? So, look, I think there are always going to be in every jurisdiction, every context, there's going to be incentives for lawyers to violate their professional ethics, whether it's, you know, doing what um, Gabo did or, you know, or becoming, you know, going into the executive branch and justifying things that themselves are, you know, are, are unjustifiable or that are wrong. 
um, you know, that there are, you know, there's always gonna be incentives for that. And so it's, I mean, it's an important aspect, I think, of the rule of law is, is for lawyers to see their role as one as, as independent, as I mean, you know, and as being responsible to their kind of ethical justifications, which of course themselves are grounded in, as you're suggesting, you know, a kind of importance of, you know, you are, you are a, you know, you are, you work for your client, but you're also an officer of the court. And, you know, and that, that is a very important, that's something that I was told very strongly by the judge I work for, you know, so you, you are an officer of the court when you're a lawyer, you have a responsibility to, um, you know, to your client, but also to, to the broader system that you operate within. Um, and that, that, that is important. And, you know, I think you know, actually saying that that's an important aspect of, of, of law school as well is, is, is learning that and seeing that. And, it, you know, I think the vast majority of lawyers do that actually. I think, you know, it's always the exception that, that don't. And I think, but it is always important when these things happen, um, whether it is, you know, the, the lawyer X Gabo thing in Victoria or the, you know, the, all the, you know, working in the, working in the Trump administration and so forth. It's very important for lawyers to think about that. Are you really, um, you know, if you're working in a administration or you're working for a client who's asking you to do things that are unethical or that are, that violate your, you know, your role as an officer of the court, you, you have a duty to not do that, either to resign, to, to give up your client, you know, relationship, whatever you have, a, you have a duty. And that's something that is, that is, you know, you're, you're in a privileged position as a lawyer. And as a result, you have responsibilities in that position. Mm. Well, that sort of covers the question I was going to pose to you um, as well. I was just going to bring up a question from disputes and ethics that seems to come up a lot um, that, you know, a longstanding high valued client comes to you. They ask you to carry out a series of transactions that are obviously meant to hide something suspicious. Um, you know, what do you do? I think your answer from what you've said just now would have been obviously don't you know, right. turn away the client. Yeah. So do you think that is a hard question for people to answer? It is. I mean, it's always a hard question. If you're under financial pressure, you need the client, you need the work. Um, you know, it's, but it, you know, it's, it is, you know, often the, the, the most difficult ethical questions, are the ones that are hard and, you know, the, it, you sh- the, the idea is that you shouldn't be, you should never be putting yourself in a position. And, and part of the, I mean, part of the, I think, uh, helpful part of being a lawyer is that we are, you know, we are in a privileged position. We, we exercise a monopoly over legal services, it's obviously illegal for, you know, anyone who doesn't have a law degree to give legal advice. So there's always other clients out there. There's always going to be. So I, I think it's unlikely you're ever going to be in a position where you, you must do this. So you then got to think, what are your motives for violating your ethical obligations and your kind of professional obligations? It's, 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 it's purely just because you, you want more money or you want more power or whatever. That's, you know, those are, those are not good reasons. So there's, there's really no, I think, no good reasons in those cases to do anything unethical. And it's, a, it's something that you, you know, that, that, you know, some lawyers obviously do and they might get away with it, but it's, it doesn't justify it in any way. And it's something that, you know, it's important that we see that the, you know, that we are the privilege that we operate in. Um, and I think some lawyers forget that. I think I'm kind of entitled to this. No, you're not. You, you know, we have, you know, we have gone through, you're part of a very privileged group of society who, who can under, first of all, you can actually read cases and understand legislation. Most people can't do that. <laughs> um, so that's, that's important. And you could, but you're also in a position where you can actually, you know, shape that legislation. So forth. And you, so you should in that position of privilege, understand that you have responsibilities and you take those responsibilities seriously, I think is something that, you know, every lawyer should do. And I, and again, I, I think most do, I, I think it's a really, um, 
you know, and, and of course the bar associations and the, you know, the, the, the professional associations themselves are strongly, you know, kind of favored and, and, you know, and they push that as well. And I think that's, that's important as well, but it's, it's, it is, it is important to see both the, the, the privilege that lawyers have. And, 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 and the more you see that, the more you see that you have to carry out those, you have to, you, with that comes with sometimes saying to a client, no, I can't do that. And, you know, and, I, and, if, and if you ask me to do that again, I'm going to have to end this relationship. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, you hope that in that, in that conversation, the client just says, oh, you know what, I'm not going to do this now. <laughs> um, but, you know, if they don't, then you, you do add, you end that relationship because that's not, you, you, you're not, it's not your role. Okay, well, ask a final couple of questions then. How have you tried to make yourself a better lawyer, academic, and person? So either individually or altogether. Um, good question. I mean, I think, you know, it's partially as, as an academic, I try to, you know, you try to constantly be, um, you know, reading new literature, trying to understand new perspectives, listening. You know, it's one of the things as I do as a comparativist is it's very easy to be, you know, to say, take an external position and say like, oh, well, that's wrong. That's incorrect. It's not the way is so is one thing is a comparative is always try to understand what's the position on the other side. What, 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 why would someone say, you know, this is, this is a better approach, even if it's one that I don't necessarily agree with. So, so, and I think that's probably not a bad thing to do in all aspects, right. Of your life is to try to understand whether it's, you know, talking to your members of your family who might be, have a political, different political views than you try to understand what their viewpoint is, where it comes from. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, it, and of course being a lawyer, I mean, I always stress this as a teacher and so where the best lawyers are the ones who understand the arguments on the other side, because of course then they can counter them. Um, so you always need to know the other side of the story. And I think the more you learn the other side of the story, the more you, you, you learn, right. And you see things uh, differently. So I think, and that's going to help you in all aspects of your, of your professional and personal life, I think. Right. Because it's very easy just to be like, to be stuck in one perspective, one view, particularly now, right. With, you know, you get Facebook algorithms and all the Twitter and they're all giving you all the same view, bang, 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 bang. It's important to see, you know, so I encourage people, if you, if you're on the left, read some right wing stuff. If you're on the right, read some left wing, you know, like just, you know, mix up your viewpoints. Um, it, 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 you may, you can, you're, it's, you'll only further deepen your, your own views and you might, you might see some things that are interesting and so forth in, in that. Um, but it, I think it's, yeah, and that can be something, whether it's, it's in your professional or, or personal life. Okay. And so last question, do you have any recommendations in terms of books, TV shows, movies, music, or just underrated people worth paying attention to? Oh, wow. I mean, I could go on forever on that one. <laughs> um, so I will say if anyone, you know, is looking for a really good spy um, TV show, it's called The Bureau. It's in French. It's on SBS. It is, it will, you will not regret it. Absolutely. One of the best, I think it's the top um, French series ever made. Um, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, 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 it's amazing. It's, it's really, really well done. Um, in terms of books, the book that I've read most recently that I just, that just blew me away is, uh, Peter Carey's The True History of the Kelly Gang. Um, a, just a masterful re, you know, kind of interpretation of the, of the Kelly, Ned Kelly story, uh, of course, so important to, you know, the Australian, Australian history, Victorian history. Um, I, um, so I think, you know, that, that book I highly recommend. Um, in terms of films that I've seen recently that I've really enjoyed, 
Um, I actually just watched a couple of days ago this film called The Dry um, with Eric Bana, and it is it's it's I highly recommend that as well. I just yeah really enjoyed that. So yeah, I mean it's the, you know there's I could keep going, but th those are at least three. You know the one French one and a couple that are actually based here in Victoria, but you know that are you know but it is important. I mean I found this during the lockdown is is you know is, is giving yourself time out to read things that are not <laughs> not law. I mean you're reading a lot of cases, guys. You're reading a lot of. Um, you know, stuff for law, but, you know, read fiction. I found fiction to be absolutely critical um, in getting me through. I read Moby Dick over the lockdown. I, I loved it. Um, not all of it. Parts of it were really, I mean, just, you know, just like there are, you know, there's, it's, there's things that really can you know, just deepen your kind of own personal, and it helps you relax and gets, gets you out of that headspace because you can't constantly, and it, it, first year particular, for those first years who are listening, first year law school can be very, can just take over your mind. You'll be thinking about it all the time, you know, and that's not a bad thing because you're learning a new language. You're learning a new way of understanding the world, but at the same time, give yourself a break, you know, give yourself a break, get into, you know, if it's, you know, Netflix or whatever, the bureau, um, you know, if it's, you know, whatever, get, find something that gets you out of that. Right? So you can, so you can come back to it fresh. Mm. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. My pleasure. Thanks, Cameron. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show, and I look forward to seeing you back next week for the final in our series of shows about obligations. Until then, enjoy week two of the semester.